the universal question that we will all find ourselves in at some point in life is, is there anything more? So the resurrection. Now, if you're like, look, this is ridiculous, can't even have a conversation about this, not getting on board with miracles and resurrections and stuff, that's a totally legit response. You have science on your side, and I am not going to argue with you. I'm going to get back to that in a minute. But first, let's do the gospel story. This this resurrection thing was a pretty big deal in the story. And, and while I said Jesus didn't need to do this for himself or accomplish anything for himself, his followers did need it, and it was what spurred the church movement on, the, the, the Christian movement, whatever you want to call it, this kingdom, this empire. This was the deal for them. It's why the church meets worldwide on Sundays to this day. This goes all the way back to this very beginning. Up until this, the Jesus movement hadn't really solidified. In fact, it appears they were about to start their old lives over again, and then this thing and the funny thing is, is we get these stories, and they're not very definitive or helpful at all if you're looking for evidence. Uh, there's enough evidence and enough people that, that saw something that they couldn't just forget about it. And there seemed to be no legit reason why they would have profited from making this stuff up. They actually got killed in some pretty gruesome ways, gruesome ways because they refused to stop talking about this. So some people were really convinced, but they didn't really have hard evidence that they could prove to the world. So it's like a resurrection story in its day became this thing where you can't just dismiss it, but you also can't prove it. And it became like a question posed to people. Do you believe? The story goes like this. After they had rested on Sabbath day, a couple of women went out to put spices on the body because that was customary. And they had a couple of friends with, uh, of Jesus with them, or a couple of his disciples, Peter and John. Now, John's the younger guy. He's maybe 13 or 14 by this point. Uh, Peter's more like 21 and 23 probably. And, and John, being a little teenager, he runs up to the tomb. And we don't have any real indication that he's expecting Jesus to not be there. He's probably running because that's what 13-year-olds do. But I can't help but wonder, you know, maybe there's just this tiny little shred of belief or hope that Jesus didn't die because they didn't break his legs. Maybe they didn't totally kill him. Or maybe there's this tiny childlike belief that Jesus rose from the grave. You know, Jesus had at one point said to Peter and John on a mountain, the Son of Man is going to be raised to life after three days, and maybe he's just naive enough to believe it. And maybe there's this shred of hope that John's like, you know, rooting for Jesus like a kid would, hoping he rose. Because you know kids, you know, they believe, they believe in things that aren't true. You know kids, all hopeful. So the story goes that Jesus wasn't there, and it said there were two dudes in white robes there that were kind of smart alecks, right? They, they, they just said, why do you look for the living among the dead? Now, that's helpful, right? See, wouldn't it have been better if Jesus were sitting there popping champagne, going, come on, guys, let's partay, but he wasn't there. Now, the Jesus stories after this get a little wild and even more difficult to reconcile. The, the Gospels all tell it differently, which isn't helpful. I mean, we're already dealing with, come on, resurrection. And then the Gospels don't seem to help much. The stories aren't that believable if you are a rational person. And then they don't even tell the same stories. It's like Jesus does not go into town and appear to his enemies or tell the Romans, I told you so, or go sign documents or give people his fingerprint. He just randomly pops up in several places 
and his disciples see him, and then he disappears again. He, he hangs out with them sometimes for a little while, and then they think he's a ghost. And at one point, he just walks through a locked door, and he eats a meal with him. And then he has these scars, and you're like, okay, well, like, couldn't you heal those two if you're going to rise from the dead? And then another point, he shows up talking to women on a road who knew him well, and they're out in the country by themselves on a road, but the, the women were kept from knowing him. And you're like, really? Like, you can't recognize a closest friend when you're walking with him on a road that wasn't him. And then at one point, a later writer says that he saw uh, over 500 people saw him at one time. So you're like, what's going on? Because there were all of these stories circulating about something happened, but they're not very cohesive or definitive. They're just enough to leave you wondering what really did happen. And then even more fascinating than this, three out of four of the Gospels don't even bother telling us what happened to Jesus at the end. Like, what happened after he rose again? And you say, did he die again? Did he grow old? Did he just vanish? What happened? They didn't even bother saying it. They just stopped telling the story after Jesus rose from the dead, and he's like in the middle of talking. Now, Mark, which was the first gospel written, doesn't even bother telling us if Jesus even rose from the dead. He just ended the Jesus story with women coming to the tomb and seeing it empty and being afraid and trembling, as if there's supposed to be a sequel, but Mark never wrote a sequel. But one writer did, Luke, and his sequel isn't about Jesus. It was about us, the, the other people, the rest of humanity. He begins a sequel of this weird story where this resurrected Jesus figure almost seems to float up into the sky. And then those dudes from the tomb show back up, the guys in the white robes, and they ask the disciples again another smart aleck question, the same question, why are you looking here? Before it was like, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And he's going, why are you looking somewhere else for proof of resurrection or why are you looking somewhere else for this kingdom or nation to be established? See, the last thing they had just asked Jesus before he rose up in the story was when his kingdom was going to come. This kingdom of God thing where their nation was the light of the world, the land of the free, the home of the brave. And these dudes were like, hey, why are you looking somewhere else for this? Earlier, before Jesus died, he had told them that people are going to say the kingdom of God is over here or over there, but they won't see it because the kingdom of God is not visible and it's already among you and within you. It's already here. And then Jesus says it's going to grow like from a seed, like a mustard seed. Now, later in the same narrative that Luke wrote in the book of Acts, the disciples start to get it. And it says they get this Holy Spirit, like this fire in them that's creating love and this new way of living. And they start living as if they believe in a different political reality, despite all the evidence around them, which takes huge faith and big time sacrifice in their current political cl climate, especially whenever their leader has just been killed. Like they believe in this kingdom with a leader who had a crown of thorns and who rides a donkey and has just been murdered. And they create a microcosm of this kingdom. It's like a tiny little seed. They, they hang out with each other every day. They call each other brothers and sisters 
even though this is revolutionary, even though some of them were Roman and some are African and some of them are Jewish and some are really old and some are young and some are rich and some are poor and they sell possessions and they share with each other. So like if somebody has two coats and another person doesn't have any, they just give them one of theirs, just like John the Baptist had said at the very beginning. They create this little village, a community like a family. It was a diverse family of all classes and colors of people believing in a new way to do empire with shared resources. And the only law that they had is love your neighbor as yourself. They called it their royal law. It was the one thing that they clung to. They didn't need any other policies or guidelines or penalties for not following. Just this. Grace and love your neighbor as yourself. And that pretty much takes care of it. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but think about the energy the human race has expended and all of the laws and governments and policies and insurance and deaths and wars, people refusing to believe that humans could just actually love each other at this level. Like, can we, we can put a space probe on a comet, but we're, we're like, seriously, love each other enough to be like this group of people? Come on, we can't love each other that much. That's crazy. Well, it takes faith because, come on, like, you know, people's motives aren't pure. They're going to take advantage of me and so on and so forth. This is not easy. It takes transparency and honesty and vulnerability, grace. People are going to hide stuff. They're going to break the law of love. There's going to be betrayal and you've got to do something to protect yourself and it takes seeing a much bigger purpose for other humans because there are people who will never be able to produce as much as they consume. One of the things they did was take care of widows in this. And, and, and think about widows, like an 85-year-old widow woman or a disabled child with a terminal disease. They will never be worth their consumption on a spreadsheet. And we have to ask, are they worth us giving to them? Is there some spark of divine goodness within them just because they're human, they're alive? The early church, they, they took care of sick and widows and destitute people, and they worked hard, and they told people about this kingdom, and wealthy people joined in and threw their money in the cause, and they started undoing the separation of the rich and poor and the Jew and the Roman and the male and the female. Now, that kind of living must have been compelling because when people tried to stomp it out, whenever it became an issue and people would be killed, like the first martyr, Stephen, and Stephen met them with forgiveness, and forgiveness wins, love wins, it starts to spread across the whole empire and take Rome over. This kingdom, this way of living, it takes eyes, and it takes guts, and it takes a heart if it's ever going to do anything. It, it takes faith that if you completely give yourself up, something is going to rise again. It takes eyes because just like the resurrection, there's no concrete proof or easily proven logic that this economy is actually going to make for a higher global GDP than the current economy or more dopamine in your brain or whatever it is you think you're searching for. And we have to ask ourselves if the people we interact with every day are still worth self-sacrificial love. 
it takes guts because even whenever you see that and you think people are worth sacrificing for, it's not like that's easy. I mean, come on. Tradition says that 10 out of 11 of the disciples were killed for living this way and preaching this alternative kingdom. And people will take advantage of you. And there are all sorts of messy things that you will walk into that you don't have to if you just could make your life, uh, spend it making it more cushy. And it takes heart. You got to love people. You, you have to see something in people. It's not rational or academic at the end of the day. There is nothing rational about believing in resurrection. Men, I'm talking to you. There's a lot of great symbolism in the Mary story here that a woman gave birth to the light of the world because women in their greater states of attachment to people and empathy and care for people, they give birth to light in us. But all through our lives, we're going to get glimpses. We're going to get glimpses of what it means, uh, what it looks like to give yourself to the cause of others. Like we're going to see kids sharing their ice cream and teachers working second jobs and nuns living like Mother Teresa, spending their lives in hospices, caring for the dying with no pay. And then the question comes, do I believe in resurrection? That if I give my life to something greater, will something greater respond and give life to me? See, that's the question. Is there anything bigger in this, in diving in? Am I going to come out on the other side of this? When we've buried that old relationship or that dream for our career or the white picket fence or the way our kids were supposed to turn out or that hope for physical mobility again or that wish to travel or the idea of getting married or that search for stardom or that dream that we had when we've gone through the winter season and the seed has just laid dormant and all we can do is wait will anything good ever spring up again is there anything bigger or divine in all of this now obviously we've done some science on this right and we got some great answers is there anything more I mean, first we walked to new lands and we sailed across oceans and we mapped the planet asking the question, is there anything more? And yeah, it turns out there is. We, we live, we discover we're on this giant blue sphere and we're like, is that it? And then we look up at the sky with telescopes and we go, no, 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 there's more. There's planets up there. There's galaxies up there. There's, there's billions of them. There's quasars and all these crazy things out there. We reach the edge of the observable universe and it's uh, given, given its age and what we can see. And we're still asking, is there anything more? Is there something beyond the edge of the observable? Is there a multiverse? And then we go smaller and we look at ourselves and we've, we're like, hey, is there anything more to me? And we, we look at these cells and uh, these little cells under a microscope and we're like yeah it turns out these are cool little bodies and they have like really cool organs in them and then they have dna and stuff is, is there more yeah we the dna turns out it's amazing it's got all these genes that program us and they're made of nucleotides is there anything more and we map it out and we call it the human genome project and and then we start looking at our brain and we, we're on the human connectome project trying to map out our brain now and, and yeah and then we realize we're on this new frontier of epigenetics and it's it's like is this ever going to end? Is there anything more? And then we build things to connect us. So we start with horses getting to each other, and then we work together to build engines and trains and cars that move us around. And, and, and if that's not enough, and we're like, is there anything more? Well, it turns out that uh, we, can, we can build roads and airways for everybody, and we can get to each other. And then we create these amazing computers, and we shrink them down to pocket size, and we connect almost every human on the planet into one giant thinking superorganism that is completely connected. And we're still asking, is there anything more? See, if you think human curiosity 
is benign. If you think discovery and scientific exploration are totally just innocuous, harmless, neutral human activities, then you haven't listened to the pain underneath your curiosity. Because I go to a developing nation across the ocean and I hang out with some of the poorest people in the world. Remote island villagers in these little small villages cut off from all of our frantic searching and they're wearing this unmistakable joy on their face. They have a ton of physical pain in their lives, death all around them. Some of them are starving, but they've got this joy that we're searching for. Like the poorest of people connected in communities where they depend on each other. And I get in my plane and I fly back to the madness of the developed world and I stuff my face with payway. And something within me that all of our conquest in a search for more hasn't paid off. But if I look inward and I face the pain inside of me and I don't run from it and I submit and I allow myself to go through my own dark night of the soul, my own questioning, is there more? And I give up the conquest narrative that more might rise up from the inside like a seed. That takes belief that I have something bigger within me, like we might even call it divine, that the universe is on my side, that there's a purpose for something, for some of this. And every single one of us, if we're honest, have to wrestle with this question at some point in our life. We cannot keep searching on the outside and avoiding it if we're going to be honest. If there's something within me that if I give my life up for a greater cause, that this something that is invisibly powerful will grow up in me. Some people say believing in resurrection is a crutch. Of course it is. <laughs> of course it's a crutch. And I'm wounded. The, the, the people that this nation was supposed to be a, a light to the world, the, the, the people were named Israel. It was a country which his name meant, its name meant struggles, he who struggles with the divine. It came from a story about a guy who wrestled with the divine one, with the gods that were out there, with God, and was injured and walked with a limp for the rest of his life. And his name was changed to Israel, he who struggles with God, because no honest human who has ever looked inside doesn't wrestle with existential belief and purpose in something bigger and, and more valuable than death. This isn't an academic question. So does resurrection actually happen? Did Jesus actually really physically, historically rise from the dead? Some of you are like, Seth Still, I want to know. Come on, tell me what you think. And some of you are like, oh yeah, of course you believe that. You go to church and all this stuff. And then there's some of people who may be like, wait a second, I go to church with you. Do you really actually believe in the physical resurrection? Or Because it sounds like you don't. Hmm. To anyone who's still wondering what I believe or whether someone else rose from the dead, you haven't heard the story. Why are you looking somewhere else? Because the story isn't academic. These ancient gospel narratives weren't rational or academic or meant to entertain us, but they were stories about a new reality and a new way of life sweeping the globe that was meant to own us. Is it true? If I give my control agenda and myself up for my neighbors and enemies in the cause of destroying the current ways of egocentric, power-driven hierarchies of empire, will anything good come of it, or did I just waste my life given to others? 
If I take a chance on people that hurt me and I step out on a limb and it all falls apart, will there be any life after that? If I have that hard conversation, if I quit that organization, if I break off the relationship, if I totally walk out on a limb and say the honest truth, if I go out and walk out the door of my nine to five job, if I give up my pride and I speak up to the people around me and the forces of power that need to be confronted, is it true? Will resurrection actually happen? Well, you got to die to find out. Hey guys, it's been fun. Uh, thanks for giving me motivation to dig into the story. I have fallen in love with it all over again, and just having some of you guys out there has given me a great excuse to dig back into this story that brings me lots of joy every time. Love you guys.